Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Gym Class All-Stars here after the tournament has concluded. We waited for a little bit longer into the week to give you this episode so we could give you the full conclusive rundown of the March Madness tournament and also a little bit extra time to get some more information here for the full week of sports. As always, we are brought to you by the Vigit sports betting app. Free coins, real prizes, download Vigit. It's an awesome time. Definitely get it. I'm going to start before we get into the men's tournament here. I'm going to start the Stanford Cardinal actually took down uh, Arizona to win the women's national championship. They slipped by UConn, which was kind of the big upset because UConn wins the women's championship every year. So just wanted to shout out the Stanford women's team before we got into the men's tournament here. Um, but speaking of, so if I'm not mistaken, we left off around the sweet 16 of the men's tournament last time. I think we did. And before we begin, to anyone listening, you probably noticed. The audio sounds better. Robbie and I have came to the realization of the past, like probably eight episodes. Robbie's mic has not been plugged in. So he's been using his computer audio. So we are a high quality, high performance podcast, as you can clearly tell. But we've been fixed. All tech issues are gone, hopefully. We're chilling. So yeah, I think we, wow, I can't believe we got to the Sweet 16. So should we go by Quadrant? Yeah, so let's just start with the top left with Gonzaga. So we had Oregon playing USC after Oregon took down Iowa. USC took out Kansas. USC was steamrolling teams as they murdered Kansas, like we said, and then did pretty much the exact same thing to Oregon, just blowing the brakes off these teams, uh, which is unexpected, again, because I was saying how this is one of the worst free-throw shooting teams uh, they're a big man oriented team. You don't see a lot of high offense with them, but in fact, it worked to their advantage, at least to get them all the way to the elite eight. Uh, Gonzaga didn't really struggle with Creighton. And then in that elite eight matchup handled USC, USC was finally their fire within them was staved. Um, any shock here or did you, did it kind of after the sweet 16 go more or less how you uh, saw it going? I was a little surprised that, the Oregon USC game was such a one-sided affair. I really thought Oregon would put up a better fight like after they did against Iowa, just absolutely running gun, shooting well. But it came down to USC played significantly better defense and really just put the pressure on them and sort of had this how do we put they put the pressure on them. They didn't allow them a lot of opportunities to score and then played very methodical offense and just sort of kept control the entire game, which is how you do it against a very fast paced team like Oregon and then Creighton Gonzaga. Yeah. Blowout. So we'll move on to the lead eight matchup. Gonzaga USC, probably the most boring of them. All things considered Gonzaga handled USC. It goes to show you just how complete Gonzaga is as a team. Like USC has great forward depth and center depth with the Mobley brothers, but Gonzaga has got just everything. And it really showed because that was also a pretty one-sided affair. Yeah. And it was really impressive for the sake of like, Gonzaga is not a team that plays a true center. Drew Timmy is, I think the tallest player they play. He's really more of a power forward, but you know, USC, they have Isaiah Mobley. They have Evan Mobley, two really good, true big men. So it was kind of cool to see that Gonzaga was able to play with a team like that and handle themselves as well as they did. Uh, again, they were on pace for that undefeated season. They were hungry. They were not going to fall in the Elite Eight. They had, uh, you know, a larger goal in mind. So that's what happened. Top left, bottom left, little, little more wild. 
Uh, we left off with Michigan and FSU. Michigan torched Florida State. Was not close. Um, yeah, no, Flor- Florida State kind of went in the middle of my prediction. I was like, they either usually either lose early or go really far. This time it was that happy middle ground of the Sweet 16, but Michigan really outplayed them in that game. Uh, bottom game was, you know, UCLA kind of this odd sleeper team that got lucky that Texas lost in the first round, but then they played Bama. And they played Bama tough. Bama, not a great free throw shooting team. Uh, UCLA used that to their advantage. Herbert Jones, I think, only had four points in the game. He's Alabama's best player. Uh, and UCLA advanced to the Elite Eight. Uh, you, you, we had talked about how that UCLA-Michigan State team was going to win that first-round matchup no matter what against BYU. Um, but did you see either of those teams, especially UCLA, making any kind of run like they did? No, because I thought Texas would be able to handle Albion Christian, and I think Texas would have been a more formidable opponent right off the bat. What I will say, though, about the Alabama-UCLA game, UCLA played great also. like This is going to be the common theme when we talk about UCLA. UCLA shot very well, played very aggressive, and even despite going down, especially in the Michigan game, which we'll get to next, they were always able to consistently churn out points and make these long stretches where they would score consistently. But the Alabama game, while they were up, almost put, they put themselves at risk. Up by three, I forget who it was in Alabama, drained this, like, I don't know, 30-foot three-pointer to send to overtime. Luckily, UCLA just came out and molly them in overtime, but a little bit of a dangerous territory and – Kind of a common theme, which we'll see with UCLA in general. Yeah, no, they, they were playing close games more or less throughout the entirety of the tournament. Had to come back against Michigan, though, in the Elite Eight. A very, very hard-fought game for a lot, lots of points. It was like, oh, UCLA is going to win this. Oh, no, now Michigan's got it back. They're in control. UCLA, the biggest thing about them is they never went too cold during their their bad stretches during this, this tournament. They never had too many consecutive possessions without scoring a basket or getting to the free throw line, and that was – extremely important for them and in their win against Michigan just how consistent they were in getting the shots they wanted to get they weren't letting Michigan's defense dictate anything Uh, and and to me that's pretty much why they won that game then yeah just you know Michigan UCLA elite eight it really seemed the beginning that Michigan was going to kind of run away with this. They seemed real well, but UCLA once again, kept it close, kept with it, played, uh, I mean, they played as well as they possibly could have. And then you got um, Mo Wagner's brother ripping off a three pointer at the end, which was a mess, but they got another decent look at it toward the end, but just fell short. Yeah. That, that air ball at the top of the key was probably the most like heartbreaking thing I watched like as a, just a fan of Michigan, like I didn't necessarily want them to win the whole thing, but like I liked them and seeing that was like, wow, that's like the best option you had to shoot that shot. And he missed it by a foot. And, you know, that second shot was a good look, but he was falling away. I, I don't really blame him for missing that last one. But uh, yeah, no, tough, tough luck for Michigan. The biggest thing, though, Johnny Juzang for UCLA was the best player in that game. He's been the best player in every game he played in up until Gonzaga. And he, he, I mean, he made the all the all team, the all tournament first team. Like he had a sensational run, um, and we'll get to that brick wall of Gonzaga he ran into in a little bit here. Uh, but let's start with completing the final four before we finish up here. So top right, that bracket was blown up with Ohio State and Purdue both losing in the first round, and it, it really did just kind of go clean sledding for Baylor. They uh, took out who did they play in the? Uh, they played Villanova 
handled yep. Villanova to get to the Elite Eight. And then Arkansas beat the, the Cinderella of Cinderella stories, Oral Roberts. I was rooting hard. You less so. Um, I was all for the upset gang. I wanted to see the first ever 15 seed advance to the Elite Eight. Alas, Arkansas held out a fantastic game, though. Very close. And uh, Ambis, or I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name, the point guard for Oral Roberts had a decent look at the end there. Didn't quite get it to fall, unfortunately. So Arkansas advanced. Uh, and then a good game in the Elite Eight, but Baylor was better. Baylor Baylor can shoot the lights out, and no one in that portion of the bracket was really prepared for it. Yeah, I think Baylor got fortunate in just who they ended up playing. Like, Ohio State-Baylor would have been a pretty dangerous matchup, but, you know, that got snuffed out pretty quick, or even Purdue in the Sweet 16. But, yeah, Baylor, this is also a common theme. Baylor played very well against some very tough opponents, and we'll get to that momentarily. The bottom right, though, my personal favorite, probably the weirdest one in terms of upsets because the sweet 16 consisted of an eight seed, which is Loyola Chicago 11, no 12 seed in Oregon state. And then the 11 seed being Syracuse and then number two, Houston. So Loyola Chicago got beat fairly. It was pretty lopsided in favor of Oregon state. State. Yeah. Syracuse Houston, which I thought would be a really good game, ended up being also a pretty one-sided affair, which was good for my sanity since <laughs> I really was harping on how good Houston was, whether it was my own bracket or on this podcast. And then Oregon State Houston Elite Eight. Houston was killing it for most of the game. The Oregon State started going on runs, and I got very nervous. So in typical fashion of me getting nervous i played a bunch of sea shanties in hopes of riding it back and houston won so should have played more sea shanties for the final four but um (laughs) houston played exceptionally well i think some could argue that they really got a fortunate bracket because they didn't have to play illinois but i don't know like playing syracuse is a tough matchup than people give credit for oregon state while being a 12 like they really showed up this tournament's so, yeah. The, the biggest issue for their the, the, the competitiveness of the games they had to play wasn't necessarily like, oh, they didn't deserve to make it as far as they did. It was just like they weren't quite as battle tested as the other teams. They didn't like like Oregon State, like they played that, that close game against Rutgers. Rutgers, they only beat them by like 5, 10, whatever it was. It was a close game. Um, but then they, they killed Syracuse, who was competitive. They were always in it, but like it was a double digit victory. Then they slipped by Oregon State. They really did almost let that game fall out of their hands. So by the time they got to the Final Four, it was like, this team is very exposable. And that is, unfortunately for them, what Baylor did. Baylor, as we're going to just continue to say throughout the rest of this, blew the brakes off of Houston. And it, it was a good run for Houston. Don't get me wrong. They really did play good basketball, but they just could not keep up with the offensive pace that Baylor was playing. So in the end, your favorite friendly neighborhood idiot, Alex, despite watching so much less college basketball than Robbie was able to predict three of the four final four teams in my bracket. I picked, ended up picking Gonzaga, Baylor and Houston. I think when we talked about in the show, I'd said Arkansas would make it to the final four. I caved and glad I did, but uh, Texas, you still should not be regarded as a state. I just want to let you know that I hate the fact that you lost in the first round, but we'll get past that final four time. 
I got to be honest. Did you watch the Baylor-Houston game? I didn't watch a second of it. It went exactly how I expected it to. I didn't either, and I'm very glad I didn't because uh, Houston would have ripped my heart out pretty quickly. Yeah, Baylor was quite scary, and um, that's kind of all I have to say about that. I just want to say shout-out Houston for getting to the Final Four. I was rooting for you, but fell a bit short. No big deal. The yeah, one we'll we all got to talk about. Oh, no, hold on. Before we get there, I got to say with Baylor-Houston, that's the game that my uh, my work bracket pool came down to. You know, most of the people had Gonzaga either in or winning the national championship. So it came down to the differential between who made the championship. That barista I called out a few weeks back, she did end up winning thanks to Baylor's efforts. So I got to give the shout out to uh, Lydia Kaufman. Asked me to give her a nice shout out this time. So congratulations on understanding basketball to a higher extent than I do clearly you should be the one hosting this podcast she also asked if I would come on here and, and say how sexy she was I'm not going to objectify women on this podcast however she's a very lovely lady who once hit on Luca Garza at a bar without even knowing so <laughs> good times all around congratulations to, to Lydia but uh 20 20 going your way oh, give me a second to unpack that hold on I, I know it was like, a lot that was a lot all right but Okay, okay, after that, I'm very much <laughs> Now derailed. the exciting stuff. I'm frazzled. I'm derailed. We got to talk about the Gonzaga-UCLA game. One versus 11 seed. I don't think anyone gave UCLA any credit for the fact that they were there. What a game. Gonzaga played extremely well, looked super dominant, and yet UCLA was able to hang around the entire game, push it to overtime, and heartbreak just utter heartbreak was it johnny juzang had the ball at the end yeah so the- so the way this went down tied in over or excuse me down two in overtime ucla awesome. has the ball johnny juzang puts up a tough floater misses off the front room gets his own rebound like a good player doesn't even take a dribble goes right back up hits the layup just over three seconds left F- true freshman jalen suggs for gonzaga gets the inbound not two steps across half court rises up kisses it off the glass, called bank. It was open on a Saturday. And just like that, UCLA's Cinderella run came to an end and Gonzaga advanced to the, to the national championship game. Yeah. What a, I mean, what a great ending to such a great game. Back and forth the entire time. Very, very enjoyable to watch. You know, I don't like to play like, you know, what what if analysis because that sucks in sports you never do that because what happens happens i hate to be that guy but i don't think if they went to a second overtime i don't think ucla would have had the energy to keep pace with gonzaga they seem to be really struggling in the first overtime and granted were able to will themselves into a tie but i think gonzaga by the second overtime would have taken care of it i don't know though that's why sports are more about what happens than what if but yeah, <laughs> just like, first of all, Gonzaga played tremendously well being able to stifle UCLA and also from their runs, like, cause they were down a good chunk of that game, whether it was by like one or two points, but we're consistently down by a bit. They showed up, they scored when they needed to, but you got to give UCLA even more credit being one of the first four in making that just incredible Cinderella run and coming a legendary shot away from potentially going to the finals. Like that's something else. Oh yeah. This was probably the most exciting finish in any tournament game we've had. 
again, since maybe that UNC Villanova finish, because it was really reminiscent of that, like, like we were texting back and forth right afterwards. Someone hits what we think is the last shot of the game, and then someone else completely rewrites history on the actual last shot. Um, this was, in my opinion, by far the, the most exciting game of this year's tournament, um, especially considering what did come to pass in the championship. So Baylor versus Gonzaga. Gonzaga trying to become the first team since the 70s to go undefeated and win a national championship. And uh, Baylor had different plans. Baylor absolutely manhandled them start to finish. They were shooting the absolute lights out. Gonzaga wasn't hitting free throws down the stretch when they, they had it at 12 in the second half. But again, they couldn't make the easy ones, the free throws. And it, it really just when you can't score with the clock stopped, it doesn't matter if you can score with it, with it moving. So hats off to Baylor for ending Gonzaga's perfect season. Jared Butler became the most outstanding player of the tournament. Gonzaga did have two players on it. Baylor also had Davion Mitchell on it. And then the other player was Johnny Deuce gang, but Baylor an awesome run. And again, they just kind of slaughtered teams down the stretch of, the, of this tournament. Yeah. I think to talk about the national championship game, First and foremost, Baylor just came out red hot. The way they were shooting the three ball, you just know as another team when someone's shooting that well, like even being defended, like this is going to be a problem. And they, I don't know what the end result was because honestly, I turned the game off about half, like halfway through the second half. But at in the second half, they Baylor was shooting above fifty percent from three. And Gonzaga was like one for eight, maybe two for eight at that point. It was it was bad to say the least. But I gotta give Baylor credit. They came out with such intensity, ferocity. They were diving after loose balls, getting offensive rebounds, doing everything you should have done. I think Gonzaga was really trying to stay calm, and they did a great job of it. But also that calmness against Baylor wasn't what they needed. They really needed to come at them and really show the intensity. And fortunately. Like some of the Jalen Suggs and ones or some of the scores down the stretch were just a little too late and didn't end up being a thing. Um, it, I was just going to say, it really looked like the idea of going undefeated got to them. Maybe, but I also think like they probably came out with the mindset, we got to stay calm and stay collected. And when Baylor just starts off like up 11 to two, like, unfortunately, that's going to get thrown out the window. You got to start score. Everyone's mindset, there's still 39 minutes of game left. That's an over-exaggeration. But everyone's mind goes out the window because, like, holy crap, we're down by nine points, and it's been, like, two minutes. Like, this is bad. So, a lot of times, you know, Mike Tyson said it best when he said, everyone has a plan to get punched in the face, and Gonzaga got punched in the face. They tried to come back, but, it, like I said, a little too late. I got to say, though, I know Gonzaga had a lot more free throws than Baylor in the end, but, like, the first five minutes of that game, it looked like Baylor was just diving over, at, like, players and just throwing their bodies everywhere. And, listen, I, I play safely, but it seemed like there was just no regard for human life on Baylor's end. It was like a – like a There can't be, man. This is, this is all hands on deck. This is – you got to give it every little bit you have. You should not be in trying to intentionally hurt anybody, of course, but – but man, I would be diving all over the floor in a game that meant this much. I don't disagree. What I was getting at, though, it seemed like you ever you play a pickup basketball and you're, yeah, we, I know, <laughs> but like you're playing against someone who is like 
kind of just like they're athletic or they're big and they just sprint at you as hard as they can to do a layup. And you're just like, okay, I can either take a charge and get thrown 30 feet back and no one will call a foul and probably call me soft. Or I can either like push back or I could just get out of the way. And to me, it was like Baylor's the one who's just running at people as hard as they can. And Gonzaga's like, okay, I'm not trying to get hurt. <laughs> I don't blame them to a degree. But that, you know, it's fair. It's fair. Like, but like, even I remember there was a play like early first half. Jalen Suggs got the ball like stripped from him and he dives for it. And they're like two guys like diving after his legs to grab it. And Suggs gets the ball to Drew Timmy. And Timmy has the ball. And immediately, like, people are just diving after him. Like, it's like, it was, it seemed more like football at the start than it was basketball. Jordan rules, baby. Yeah. You know, that's, see, it's hard because we complain about the NBA being soft every now and again. I do like that intensity. It just seemed like based off my mindset of watching so much NBA basketball is like, where, where are the fouls? Like, what's, yeah. why is it not being called? But I love that sort of mindset. Baylor came out, played electric. They played so well defensively against I mean, the number one team in the country. And we're still without an undefeated team since the 70s. So, Yeah, many have tried. Few have succeeded. Uh, We'll see if we get another shot next year. But, you know, this this was a fun tournament full of upsets. You got one more thing here. Before we move on, winners and losers. I got to shout out a few. Winners, the Pac-12 as a conference. Oh, yeah. No one took you seriously. It took... I think there was a matchup before it, but it literally took until Oregon and USC to actually eliminate a Pac-12 team, which yep. for us, late at night, we usually don't watch them, but Pac-12 plays a different brand of basketball, maybe more shooting, a little more electric, but hey, they showed up and they won. Big loser. <laughs> we got to shout out the Big Ten. Awful, yep. awful show. Horrible showing. <laughs> Michigan's the only team that actually showed any any like form regular season form ohio state purdue first round exits iowa second round exit i mean you, you didn't expect too much from Rutgers. Rutgers only only won one game wisconsin only won one game michigan state didn't win even the first four matchup like just man not a good showing from the big 10 yeah and then we got to go back to winners obviously ucla is a big winner i think mm-hmm. another sleep actually another winner is myself for believing in Houston. So I'd like True. to shout myself out. Uh, big loser is Purdue and you because, um, no, yeah, Ohio we thought me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, biggest winner, Oral Roberts. Put biggest winner, on the mat. Oral Roberts. We love a good 15 seed run. Oh yeah. Big fans of Lehigh or Norfolk state. And you know, they showed up, they got FGCU. to the Sweet 16. Um, another, well, big loser being Gonzaga because they lost when it mattered most, unfortunately. Yep. Still a damn good team, but not good. And then another winner would be the Indiana Hoosiers of like 1975 because they are still the last undefeated team to win the championship. You know, I got to say, this is my last thought on the tournament. Drew Timmy, you see me play enough where I honestly think the way he plays in terms of his athleticism is exactly how I, I would play if I was an NCAA basketball player. I wouldn't play that effectively because he drops 24 points a game very casually, but he's has the ball, very methodical, not super fast. He rocks good facial hair. And you know, I have that. I I was going to say the biggest thing is I don't know why, but I can see you with his mustache. 
I'm telling you, by far, the winner of the tournament is Drew Timmy with his celebration when he'd score, would go up and down the, <laughs> the cheeks with the mustache and point at the crowd. Huge fan, all-time celebration. 100%. I'm, I'm glad we got to that because that, that was a very important point that we needed to get to. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's pretty much our wrap up here on the tournament. A little more college stuff to get to in just a sec here, but uh, a fun tournament full of upsets, full of craziness. I uh, hope everybody's bracket did well. Hope you want money. And if you didn't, there is quite literally always next year. So that being said, a little bit more for college basketball. The AP awards have gone out. Jawan Howard, the AP coach of the year for Michigan. Davion Mitchell, the AP defensive player of the year for Baylor. And our boy, Luca Garza, the AP national player of the year. And assuming then being the front runner to be the wooden award recipient. Did uh, These things kind of go as you expected them to, these three awards. Yeah, and also on top of that, uh, AP Women's Player of the Year, Paige Buchers, yep. true freshman as well. First I know you definitely forget about that. That's just something that you and I have talked about tremendously about how good she is. As Let's actually let's talk about that for a second because I hear WNBA reporters and players saying that she might already be the best player in the WNBA, and that is absurd. That If you guys haven't heard of Paige Buchers or haven't looked her up, like look her up. She gets her shot up quicker than I've ever seen a WNBA player be able to. She understands the game better than most of these people, and again, the first freshman to ever win the player of the year in women's basketball. Yeah, it's wild because she's going to have to wait like till she graduates, which is like, okay, good and bad thing because you get your education and all that. But yeah, it's crazy that freshman being like, like hundred percent the best player in women's college basketball, and even would hold her own in the WNBA. Like you watch Sabrina Ionescu like uh, last year, dominant player at Oregon, goes number one to the New York Liberty, and you know that was as a senior. Like Paige Buecher still has three more years and is so dominant, being on a UConn team as well. Like. Like what's I don't know what her ceiling is because she's like barely at the floor, I guess, as a freshman, which is kind of terrifying. The the ceiling might genuinely be like Elisa Leslie, like Amaya Moore, like one of these all-time WNBA players, because she is really just that good. The hope becomes like she doesn't get any kind of serious injury in those just like required years before she can go into the draft. Yeah. And then for the guys' side, we're happy Garza got his well-deserved. AP player of the year. I mean, he's been there for four years and quite frankly, it was the shining glimmer of hope during that crushing blow to Oregon. Yeah, no 36 and might as well have been the only 36 points we scored all game. Going back to that though, Michigan with John Howard or well, Davian Mitchell. Yeah. I mean, we saw it in the championship, like freak defender. I, I was going to say Herbert Jones of Alabama is the only other name that deserved to be in the defensive player of the year discussion. But yeah, but with the way Davion played in the, in the tournament, especially, I don't know how much that factored in, but man, I, I no complaints here. Yeah. And then John Howard, like props to him for not that Michigan was like bad by any means. I mean, they were in the finals uh, in 2018 against Nova, but just to come in and not even miss a beat and to take your team to a number one seed, you got to lead eight, you lost to UCLA, you know, close game, but for your first year, like, Hey, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. And it goes to show you that I think he is very ingrained in Michigan culture, obviously being part of the fab five, and he's going to do a lot for the program. He could honestly be kind of like a Bayheim or a Shashevsky when he's just there for, a number of years and has a lot of success like for the program and elevates them to one of those blue chip schools. 
No, I completely agree. I think John Beeline set the, the framework for him pretty well and for him to step in and be able to run his own system already got one of the top recruits for next year coming in. I'm, I'm blanking on the name. I just, I remember seeing the report that we got one of the top 10 recruits. Uh, so yeah, shout out to Joan Howard on a spectacular first season. You know, people are going to expect bigger and bigger things now, but that's okay because you went out there, you deserve it. You still got your boy Hunter Dickerson should be back. You want to, you want to be one of the best, if not the best center next year. So yeah, things are very much looking up for the Michigan basketball program. All right, one more key thing to get to here for the NCAA. Well, I guess two real quick. Uh, freshman Devin Askew of Kentucky is entering the transfer protocol. He was a five-star recruit, didn't like the system. Kentucky is maybe on the way out of being a top team after last year, but who knows? But uh, so he's going to leave. But the big news being Roy Williams, legendary coach for UNC, three-time uh, champion, 903 career wins, third most all-time has called it a career. He is going to retire after this last year here in UNC. Hubert Davis is prepared to take over. He's been a longtime assistant. They're very excited about bringing him in and what he's going to bring to the team. But uh, definitely got to shout out Roy Williams. He, I mean, a pillar in the college basketball world for his entire career. Even as a begrudging Duke fan, I do have to admit Roy Williams, excellent career after Dean Smith retired, just not even taking – not even missing a step going in one of three titles, like obviously did a lot for the program. I thought it was a sick April fool's joke and it ended up not being, but uh, you know, Karat's in a great career. Enjoy retirements. You've done a lot of great things for UNC and honestly, quite frankly, made the rivalry between Duke and UNC all the better. Cause it was two great coaches squaring off twice a year. Truly. Hopefully he enjoys retirement, but continues to root for UNC. I would assume. Hopefully. That's going to be it for college basketball. Might be our last college basketball report for a little while, given it's now going to be the offseason. None of these guys are going to be playing. Uh, but, again, it's been super fun covering the tournament all year, or at least the last month and preparing for it all year. So, that being said, we got, you know, other sports. You know, baseball's back. We'll get to that in a second here. NFL, though, still in the offseason mode. We're going to go there first as the Jets have started to make a little noise. We talked about how Sam Darnold – we didn't really know what he was going to get traded for. If he was going to get traded at this point, he has been dealt to the Panthers in return for a plethora of draft picks. They got a sixth round pick this year and a second and a fourth for next year. To be honest, I think it's a decent haul for Sam Darnold. Um, what, what are you feeling about that trade? When I saw the sixth round pick, I was a little bit disappointed because I think Sam Darnold, despite reservations people have, is worth more than the sixth round pick. I mean, he's sure. young as hell. I will say, though, and I didn't realize this because no one talked about it because shout out like any news reporting. They did get a second round pick for the following year, which I think that is kind of a valuable haul for the Jets. Uh, you know, I think the three picks they got for him are pretty much worthwhile. Sam Darnold, I think, while has potential, I think the Jets wanted to move on from him, whether it was through Deshaun Watson or through another quarterback. And the Panthers, they have a young quarterback to go with their fairly young team. I think it's a good move for both sides. And then what this means is the Jets are in prime position to draft a quarterback number two. And this makes sense. And I think we're at that impasse right now. Yeah, I think that's the way they're going to go. Is kind of like when the uh, the Grizzlies traded Mike Conley to make room for John Morant. Yeah. Like, it's kind of got to make those moves. Obviously, Sam Darnold's not have the uh, – the honus of, of a Mike Conley, but similar concept. Um, but yeah, so at number two, 
we've seen some pro days now. We're starting to see how some of these guys look. Who do you think, assuming Trevor Lawrence does go number one to Jacksonville, who do you think would be the guy on the top of the draft board for the Jets? Yeah, so go one, Jaguars with Trevor Lawrence, two would be the Jets, and three would be the 49ers. The way I believe the reports are shaping out to be, this is assuming other trades don't fall into place, which we'll kind of talk about what we mean by that momentarily. I think the Jets are going to pick Zach Wilson at two. And I think the 49ers are going to pick Mac Jones at three. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, interesting. There's that that meme that came out that 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 Mac Jones overthrow that Kyle Shanahan like looking on like oh no am I about to just get this guy again? I don't know. It seems like the 49ers are pretty infatuated with Mac Jones. I think Zach Wilson. It, uh, put it this way. Zach Wilson falling to three would be a dream for the 49ers, but I don't. I think he's going to go second. He had a great pro day really showed up and really impressed a lot of people both in college and also like with his workouts, you know, the, I guess the million dollar question is where's Justin Fields fall in all this? Cause he also had a really great pro day and it's sort of fallen by the wayside for whatever reason. I ever heard reports that, you know, something with his in a bit, like he doesn't seem to really want it. Like he doesn't have that like Tom Brady, like win at all costs mentality type thing. But he also is like 21. So it's let's simmer down there a little bit with, you know, in terms of caring. He obviously cares or else he wouldn't be declaring for the draft or showing up to pro days and all that. Justin Fields, though, I feel like could fall to. I don't think Atlanta is going to pick a QB, but could fall to one of those teams that sort of is looking for another quarterback. He could fall like mid to late first round and it's not no fall of his own doing. I think people are just are really just in love with Zach Wilson for probably good reason than Mac Jones for whatever reason. Mac Jones is the Sam Darnold of this draft. I want to make that very clear. (laughs) No, Mac Jones is the Josh Rosen of this draft. Oh, that's even worse. I want to make that abundantly clear. All right. Oh, yeah, no, the thing is, like, you you got Wilson, you got Lawrence. Like, the the top tier of the quarterbacks are kind of heavy here, and Fields is just a little – more difficult apparently to to rank him i guess so yeah there's that chance that he falls to like 12 to 15 or something and some team vet in there would be very happy my god if the steelers somehow get him at like 20 or whatever fucking pick we have that would be the sexiest thing i've ever but it honestly could happen like to me his draft stock for whatever reason is kind of falling and it screams like early 20s for our pick and yeah, I think he could do a lot with Justin Fields. I think he has a lot of really great potential. The other thing, I need to implore our audience to listen. When was the last time an Alabama QB has done something productive? Thank you. I can't think of it. Now, I will put this caveat that I think Mac Jones is indeed better than Greg McElroy, A.J. McCarron, and I, I, I couldn't tell you another – Alabama quarterback that has went in the draft since, but I don't know. I'm a little, we're going to have to, this will develop because the draft is coming up. Give it some time. Cause honestly, maybe a lot of these smoke and mirrors will sort of fall down. We'll actually hear more reports, but right now I'm a little concerned about how high Mac Jones draft stock is. And with Justin Fields, it's kind of falling for whatever reason. So I'm a little weird about that. 
you know, again, we're draft about three weeks out at this point. So we'll, we'll keep you updated as, as like you said, kind of some of the facade stuff gets taken down and we start to really understand who these teams are considering taking. So teams one, two, and three, the, the Jaguars, the Jets, the 49ers seem to all be locked in as for sure keeping and taking those picks. Atlanta has come out and essentially said that they are willing to move the fourth overall pick. So the two questions being one, if they do take the pick, who would be the guy for them? And two, if they trade it, what do they need to get in return? There's a few ways you'd go about this. I don't think you draft a QB quite yet. I still think Matt Ryan yeah. can produce. Got a few good years left. You don't need wide receivers, assuming they stay healthy. Huh. It's tough because you have Austin Hooper as well. And I wouldn't immediately go to – no, wait. No, is Austin Hooper? No, Hayden Hurst. Hayden Hurst. Yeah. Hayden Hurst. My apologies. Austin I Hooper, know. I think, is with Cleveland now. Yeah, which felt weird for me to say. But <laughs> you sort of need to upgrade your defense, but I don't know where that would start. I mean, a thought that comes to mind is a linebacker with Micah Parsons, but I feel like that's a little high, which leads you to the reason why you would move back. I have heard reports that maybe the Patriots are interested in that pick and they'd go for a quarterback. And that with Justin Fields would make a lot of sense and be very, very terrifying for my sanity. Yeah. Uh, another team. Oh, I don't know. I don't think the Dolphins would want to move up anymore. They already have. You would. I think it's the Patriots or they keep the pick, honestly. Yeah, I, I, I've like I've heard that the Steelers do want to consider moving up to potentially draft a quarterback, but I don't think they want to give up enough to get four. I've heard like somewhere in the range of like 10 to like 12, 13 is where they're trying to aim. So mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to make a play at four. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know if anybody's going to be willing to give up what you assume Atlanta is going to demand for this pick. And because because there's too much of a chance that it backfires that the three guys you want or two, assuming, you know, you can't get Lawrence are gone in the two picks before it's, it's a big risk at number four. It's, you know, that top three is usually pretty solid. So we'll see what Atlanta does again, about three weeks, I think a little bit more until the draft, but we're, we're coming up on it. The lions signed defensive back Quinton Dunbar lions. We're not, you know, we're not expecting them to make too much noise, but just the, the lone free agent signing of the week. Uh, the final thing here for the NFL. So Deshaun Watson is now up to 22 lawsuits against him. It's not going well for the man. It very clearly seems like he doesn't respect women, which is not great. Uh, my question just becomes, is this the reason he hasn't been traded? Because I've seen, you know, a report or two out there saying that there have been trades in line to send him to places like Carolina. I think the Jets might have been one of them. And the, the Panthers, the Jets, the teams receiving him are the teams saying no because they don't want to deal with this. This whole situation is much messier than I think like some of the bigger sports center bleacher report wants you to understand because this is not a good thing Deshaun Watson's being accused of. And I think some franchises are recognizing that they don't want that kind of bad press just for a good quarterback. Right. And yeah, I completely agree where, you know, at first it was like, okay, you know, you have one lawsuit okay, you know, this happens every now and again, but when you accumulate five, seven, nine, and 22, you kind of have to go, okay, we sort of have to assume that there, there's, there's a pattern here. This is interesting because 
I could definitely see a world where obviously I don't think teams want him as much because I genuinely mm-hmm. believe that people are starting like they genuinely believe that there's at the very least a kernel of truth here, if not the entire thing being true. The problem is from what I have, maybe the Texans knew about this prior, but it seems like the Texans have no interest in getting rid of him. And if they genuinely did, and were trying to hide behind like smoke and mirrors. They should have dealt him immediately if, because, you know, now his stuff's coming out and his value, despite him being a perennial quarterback, it's gone. Like mm-hmm. no team should want him. And if these lawsuits are true, honestly being in jeopardy of playing in the league again or at least in my opinion should be so it's a tough call i i think the texans waited too long to potentially try and deal with him sorry to deal him not deal with him i don't think they've honestly dealt with him whatsoever about this which is kind of sad quite frankly i I don't know i need to figure it out i think right now (laughs) Everyone knew Deshaun Watson wanted out, which drops his value. But the fact that there's additional baggage with it and it's very, very major baggage, like it's just at an all time low. Like it's just another instance of the Texans still being very incapable of dealing their valuable assets properly. Yeah, no, I got I got three things I want to say here. Number one, the state of Texas is still by far the worst state in the United States of America. And this does not change that aside right. yeah even despite our feelings about texas losing the tournament we still would like to further <laughs> amplify that point whole, wholeheartedly there number two the nfl needs to step in and suspend deshaun watson for the next season i am sorry this is like completely disrespectful i don't care if none of these are true to be completely honest if you're getting accused of doing this 22 separate times that is despicable maybe not maybe the entire season is a little aggressive until you can see what what is truly real and what isn't but Again, this this is just more of a respect standpoint. Like you, you have to respect women. You have to respect all other kinds of people. That's just part of this. And if Deshaun Watson isn't doing that, the league does have to step in because that's despicable. And number three, the Texans screwed up the most because, like you said, they waited way too long. And now you're not going to get your James Harden type package. You're not going to get your four draft picks. You're not going to get your your superstar player. You're going to have to give up Deshaun Watson rather than get something for him. I don't think you understand. They are going to get James Harden. Hall in this trade, which is going to amount to like a few picks and like 20 games of Victor Oladipo in this case. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I really honestly want to see how this develops because I do want to like, I'm very curious to how this entire situation develops, not only from a legal perspective, but from like a purely sports perspective too. It's going to be a very interesting few months because training camp is coming up and yeah, I, I don't know. I'm very curious. Yeah, I, I agree with you. This is almost uncharted territory because, like you said, like players in professional sports get accused of these kind of things almost all the time, but not to this extent, not to this magnitude. So I'm just, yeah, I'm curious how, how he handles it, how the team handles it, how the league handles it, how the legal system handles it, honestly. So that's where we're at in the NFL. So we'll, again, continue to keep you posted on this Sean Watson situation as it continues to develop. Finally, we get to report on baseball. However, it has been a long time, long offseason, slow offseason. Uh, but baseball is back opening day on April Fool's Day. So we'll, we'll recap opening day in a little bit here. But uh, so one team in baseball through, through a series and, and a game plus ha- remains undefeated. That would be our Philadelphia Phillies 
4-0, looking real sharp out of the gates. Pitching looks good. Hitting's doing all right. Uh, you know, Phillies are a team that has been accustomed to slow starts over the past few years. This, not that. So as a Phillies fan, how you feeling? I'm excited. I love it. We swept the Braves, and the Braves are obviously a very dangerous team. And then last night we played the Mets. It was their season opener because the Nationals stuff got suspended. You know, Jacob deGrom, obviously a very dominant pitcher for the Mets and probably another NL Cy Young candidate, obviously. Just, he, you know, through six innings, you know, no runs given up, looked absolutely dominant. And then the eighth inning, the Phillies came alive and after being down 2 nothing, got five runs. And the, in typical Phillies fashion, it couldn't be a nice win. They, uh, in the ninth inning, uh, JC Alvarado was into relief pitch and um, gave up a few hits. I think it ended up being five, three and with two runners on. So a little scary the ball almost went in for a homer, which would have really sucked. But I think what's important to know is the Phillies have, the Phillies have had a, a really good roster, especially, you know, Bryce Harper, Reese Hoskins, McCutcheon. Uh, you can go on on Segura. Romuda, of course. Oh, yeah. The issue was, as always has been, just the relief pitching or the depth of pitching in general. Noel's a stud. Zach Wheeler is unbelievably dominant. It's been after that, like, what has kind of occurred. Zach Eflin played a lot better in his third game against the Braves. I think, what's his name? Michael Moore. Is that their fourth? Matt, Matt Moore. Matt Moore. Matt Moore. My apologies. And even then, like Matt Moore left after, I want to say, just under four innings, gave up two runs. But it was awesome to see, like, long-standing, like, middle relief pitchers. And then, like, finally to close it out, like, the Phillies' bullpen actually was decent. And it wasn't 2 nothing. starting pitcher gets pulled. And then it's, like, 12 nothing by the end of the game. And just like, I hate this. It has been good to finally see the hitting has been there. They need to work on their base running a little bit. But they really seem to be a complete team again. And I'm very excited to see what the season has to bring. Still a long season, but to start 4-0 against some really tough teams, hey, I'm I'm happy for of them. I am as well, of course. Both of us being Phillies fans, so we're going to hear a lot about the Phillies on this show. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's finally feeling good. Again, we got 11 years of Bryce left. We have to make the playoffs some of those years. <laughs> I would also like to say I'm really sorry to derail this. But uh, according to Adam Schefter, an NFL insider believes San Francisco will draft Mac Jones with a third overall pick and keep Jimmy Garoppolo. So your favorite tall sports podcaster, Alex, here predicted it before Adam Schefter did. So thank you. Thank you. You can send me any money over the mail, probably. I don't know. But Over the mail. That's how it's, we do it. Yeah. Send, send, send me send me a fax of your money. <laughs> oh boy, oh, man. Please do, guys. We, send we me, yeah, send here. me faxes of how much you love We're me. I'd love to get them. Barely keeping the lights on. <laughs> but <laughs> please help. But like you mentioned, Mets Nationals didn't happen. Um, the Nationals had, I think, four people test positive for COVID. They're playing now, they're good. Uh, that's going to happen this year. We know that it's just going to be part of it until the players and the staffs can get fully vaccinated and we can start dealing with this. But just be prepared for that. Teams may play less games than others. It's okay. 
Uh, the big other big thing here, Baltimore was given a 0% chance to make the playoffs. Zero, literally it. not even 0.1, 0% chance. They swept the Red Sox to start the season. They're currently 3-1, and one, and the MLB, or excuse me, ESPN has now ranked them at number four in the power rankings. I don't know what ESPN is doing, but somebody needs to be fired. 100%. And it's not Paul Pierce. Ayo. No, no. Uh, that's another story, and we are excited to get to that one. But let, let, let's stick here with baseball and the Orioles. Like, I, I was talking to a good buddy who follows baseball closely, and he was like, where do you rank the Orioles? I was like, like 20th. Like, they're they're fine. They're not going to be the worst team in baseball. They have some young guys, but and, like, they're going to surprise us at moments, but they're not going to make any real noise this year. Yeah, they're in an unbelievably tough division with the AL East. Like, I know the Yankees lost an opening day to the Blue Jays, but they're still a scary team. The Blue mm-hmm. Jays themselves are a scary team. Mm-hmm. The, Rays, the Rays time will tell with them they're sort of like they're gonna need some time to pick it up and you know right now they're I think 500 so give it some time the Red Sox I think will be the worst team in the AL East mm-hmm. again or not not again but they will be the worst team in the AL East but that's what goes to show you just how dominant that division is and is going to be yeah 100 percent Opening day around the league, obviously very exciting for baseball fans to see baseball back. We saw the Rangers with a full stadium, which is ridiculous. Um, Kershaw got blown up on opening day, which was interesting. The Rockies. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's always tough to pitch in Colorado. I I was there a little over a year and a half ago at this point um, to watch. uh, It was Hinjin Rue that year. He was doing really, really well. And, I mean, even he gave up. It was his first time giving up more than two runs in a game all season. He gave up eight. It's that low altitude. Most home runs per year hit in Rocky Stadium. I yeah, I mean, or maybe I, Yankees because Yankee is like low fences. Yeah, that low fence. Yeah, that really kills. That's always why it's tough to pitch there as well. Um, yeah, you get yeah, like no. a, a double and it's like a home run. Literally, it's great. Literally. It's great. It's electric. <laughs> why pe- part of part of why people love playing in New York? I assume there's at least a few other reasons, but that has to be one of them for for a baseball player. Um, the Royals came off to a hot start i think they're three and one right now also you know again we'll see with some of these hot teams just to start off like who stays hot and is actually a good team and who kind of cools down but but the royals are one of those teams that it's like if if their pitchers do well they they have the batters to be a decent team so we'll see with them um any other teams you want to you wanted to point out from opening day opening week well if we're talking about really bad teams that could be good i did want to look at the pirates but the pirates are one and three so not much of a surprise there uh you know you know, give my Phillies a great shout out. The Dodgers losing a game was shocking, but they're still terrifying. Please don't sleep on them. Please yeah. just don't sleep on them. I'll shout out Nick Castellanos. He's got three home runs. I think he just got a two game suspension, but uh, yes. he, he's, he was killing it until I, that point. Um, I got to say, though, I know we talk about like the Yankees or Dodgers being like the most hated team in baseball. But I'm all here for the Reds just deciding to put up a middle finger to the entirety of baseball. I'm a big fan of whatever they've been doing. In addition, though, uh, Tatis left the game yesterday, which yeah, not a good look for that exorbitant contract. But hopefully he's okay because he is absolutely incredible to watch. But Padres was saying it looked like a it looked like a bad injury, like a shoulder separation kind of. No, like it it was something. It was non-contact which is always the worst part and it just something gave out it seemed like it was what it was explained to me so hopefully he's okay because that is essentially the MLB's poster child at this point as it should be yeah the Padres are three and two they still have a great core but yeah Mm -hmm. not having Tatis 
appears to be some left soul, left shoulder injury. Jeez, I cannot speak today. It's not a good thing. But right. hopefully he comes back. We absolutely enjoy seeing him. There's a reason why we love Slam Diego for like our second episode of this podcast. <laughs> absolutely electric. Oh, yeah. Now, hopefully he comes back full health. Because, uh, again, that big deal, you hate to see that, especially in the first year. He's such a young, promising player. All right, that's our first report on this up, uh, up, not upcoming current season of baseball. We will have upcoming reports coming in the next weeks, obviously, as now baseball is going to start getting into full swing here. One last sport to get to here before our next segment, that would be the NBA. A couple signings as the trade deadline has come to pass. Buyout market is in full swing. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins had been cut a little while ago from uh, Houston. He is signing a 10-day contract with the Clippers. Uh, Serge Ibaka has been out since the All-Star break. No true timetable on his return. And Zubats really being the only other center on roster. They traded Kevin Jelly at the, the deadline. They, they needed some help. And they're going to give Boogie a chance here. I, I like the move for a 10-day contract to see what he brings rather than just jumping the gun and, and signing him. Um, so do you, do you think DeMarcus Cousins is going to be able to make any kind of real impact, I assume, coming off the bench for this team? I think it's good for bench depth. I think he'll add some components but he's not the same boogie he was dropping 27 and 12 in the kings unfortunately he's been plagued with injuries but listen it's still a good signing i think they'll pick him up for a half i don't know half season they'll pick him up for the rest of the season kind of thing like guarantee it it's a very minimal risk and i don't think there is any risk associated for like potentially a reasonable reward yeah, no complaints. I say like the like the worst case scenario is he he gets hurt and you wasted a minimum contract on him. The best case scenario is he returns to some usable form to help your team in the playoffs. Yeah, boohoo! Billionaire Steve Ballmer is going to lose out like one million dollars. Exactly. <laughs> another ten day contract and another former All Star getting signed. Uh, a really favorite one for me because I love this guy Isaiah Thomas, little short guy. Uh, finished third place for MVP in 2016, I think it was. He has signed a 10-day contract with the Pelicans and will wear number 24 in honor of the late Kobe Bryant. I hope he also gets signed for the rest of the season. Pelicans are in this, we need someone to teach our young guys how to play basketball. We lost J.J. Redick. Can you teach Lonzo Ball how to shoot a basketball, how to, how to be an aggressive player? Or maybe we're not going to play Lonzo much because we know he's leaving. Do you want to be our fill-in guy? That, that could also very much be the case. Uh, either way, I have very high hopes for Isaiah Thomas staying in the NBA. He's leaving? I mean, Lon- it sounds like Lonzo isn't going to be in the, on the Pelicans if they let him walk in free agency. Like, Oh, yeah, that I – okay, that I – Yeah, no, 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 sorry. Not, not like he's going to be away from the team or anything. Just the concept of in free agency, he doesn't want to play in New Orleans, and it doesn't seem like their system works too well with him anyway. So, yeah, just kind of the idea of seeing how moving on from Lonzo would actually transpire. He'd be a good player for the Nets, Dad. <laughs> I think the Knicks are the front runner at this point, but the of Nets course, of course, the Knicks are the front runner. Knicks are the Knicks front runner for everybody. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, so Isaiah Thomas on the Pelicans. The Pelicans not really in any kind of playoff contention, but again, hopefully he can help some of the young guys, Zion Ingram, and a lot more of a uh, prominent signing for impacting the team. Jeff Teague was traded from Boston to. Orlando, Orlando waived him as they're rebuilding. Uh, he assigned with the Bucks, who traded DJ Augustine in the PJ Tucker deal to Houston. So they were in need of a backup point guard. Teague for sure fits the bill, joining up with his old coach, Mike Budenholzer. He was an all star under Budenholzer. Um, 
The Bucks also re-signed, or excuse me, not re-signed, extending Drew Holiday's contract four years, lots and lots of millions of dollars. Him, Middleton, Giannis now all under contract for multiple years. The Bucks have locked in their core. The big question now becomes, can this core win a championship? Do you, do you, do you think this core is going to win a championship? I think if they don't win it this year, and I don't think they're going to, like next year is the time to do it. Otherwise, like Drew Holiday's getting older. Not to say he doesn't have some gas left in the tank, but by the third year of that extension, you you better be at least in a great position to win. Like they have the pieces. I just don't think I don't think they're going to be able to win some close games because they're going to have to either play like the Sixers, which have probably the best are the best defensive matchup for them, or you play Sixers or the Heat, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, or, yeah, or the Heat, of course. Or you play the Nets, which it's just going to be Kevin Durant against Giannis. And I think Kevin Durant will ultimately win that battle because he's Kevin Durant. If he freaking plays. If he well, plays. Yeah, no, but you're right. That's what I'm um, getting at, where I just don't think that the team – they're great, but they just have such bad matchups. Like they need, they're it's they're missing a piece. And honestly, I think what the ultimate answer is going to be is that Giannis shouldn't have been the centerpiece of the franchise. And I mean that Giannis is a transcendental talent, but I think it just doesn't having him instruct uh, like constructing a core around him doesn't win a championship than if he was like the second option on a team. So like yes. Like if you had a situation like with um, Dallas, where you have Luca, who is can do everything, and then you have Porzingis, who is this freak athlete, who's like the second piece. Not to say Giannis, like Giannis, is significantly better than Porzingis, and I think currently has a more better impact than Doncic. But I think Doncic's ceiling is higher, if that makes sense. I I, I think it does, and I want to try and hone this a little bit here. What you what you're saying with Giannis can't necessarily be the top scoring option. Like Giannis is a 30 point per game scorer. Giannis is a yes. fantastic scoring option, but Giannis is not a good scorer. And this is going to sound stupid of me, but I promise you, this makes sense. If you watch Giannis, a lot of his scoring comes at the free throw line. A lot of his scoring just comes from being bigger and faster than people getting up and down the court, and a lot of it comes from offensive rebounds. But if you're talking about the ability to create your own shot, Giannis is very bad at it outside of 10 feet. Very bad at it. Middleton's good at it, but he's not great at it. You wouldn't like if if Chris Middleton was Devin Booker, I think they could be a, a slightly more capable, at least offensive team. I, obviously, Middleton gives you much more on defense than Booker, but Booker is a straight up offensive weapon. He can score from any spot in the half court and he can take the pressure off of Giannis, who can then maybe still score 25 to 30 points per game. But instead of 54% from the field, he's shooting like 60% from the field. He doesn't shoot any threes unless they're wide open. It's just, it's one of those things that he can be the best scorer on a very good team. But if he was the second best scorer, that would be the best team. And that's what I'm saying is Middleton and Holiday are never going to be that much better of scorers than Giannis. And that's my reason to say that I am certain that this Milwaukee Bucks core will not win an NBA championship. I, I just I don't think they can do it, especially now with the Sixers only on the rise, with the Nets having formed another super team. You know, we don't know what teams like Boston, Miami, the Hawks, I guess, are going to be able to do. But the, the top of the East, you know, say what you want about the rest of the East, but the top of the East is no cakewalk anymore. It's, it's not even as easy as it was last year. 
and they didn't even make it. So my fear just becomes if Giannis can never get to the point of getting to the finals and learning what it takes to really have to win one, I don't don't think he ever will. Because I do think that he's the kind of player that will lose his first championship appearance. Yeah, well, well said. I just, it's one of those, they're going to probably have to end up destroying everything around him if they really do genuinely want to win a championship. But you, you can't justify either trading Giannis or destroying the core around him. Because yeah, Giannis they were put in this situation. No, yes, exactly. Like they were put in the situation like where they couldn't think about is Giannis the best fit for our system because he was so good of a player. You have to keep him there and do everything you have to do to keep him there. You don't get to have the liberty of, well, do we have the right coach? Do we have the right like play style for him? The whole point's like play around him, but if Budenholzer can't do that, you know, that, that's the thing. You don't win the championship this year. I think you still keep Budenholzer. You don't win the championship next year, three years being a top favorite team to win it then I think it's time to move on from Golden Holzer before you blow up the roster. Yeah, actually, that's a great addition because the Sixers were having issues with Joel and Ben. And I really do. I mean, granted, they got Doc Rivers, who's one of the best coaches in the NBA. So they lucked out there. But yeah, honestly, think about getting a different coach. Budenholzer is a good coach. I don't think he's your answer, though. He's better than Brett Brown. I'll give him that. But I think, yeah, before he'd blow up the roster, definitely consider getting rid of Budenholzer. At least give it a look because he's a good coach. But again, you know, Brett Brown was a good coach. There's what the Raptors did as well. I had Dwayne Casey, coach of the year, got Nick Nurse. You know, granted, they got Kawhi as well, but. Sure. But still, you exactly. You make make the perfect point of sometimes there is just a better. Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr, the difference that made for the Warriors. All right. One more signing here. That would be uh, Andre Drummond, who was the big. Uh, buyout market candidate went to the Lakers as expected of most people. He, however, did get hurt in his debut for the Lakers, meaning him, LeBron Davis all out. And because of that, the Lakers have now fallen behind Denver for the, uh, they're, they fall into five. Denver has risen to four and beads out. LeBron's out. James Harden just re-injured himself. Jokic has to be the MVP front runner now. Right. And I mean, to be completely honest, I think there's only really one name that you put in the contention with him and it's Damian Lillard. You stole my bit. I was going to be the one to say that. That was totally. Oh, I'm sorry. You stole everything about it. Even take the, it. Take it back. Let's backtrack. I can't Let's turn it back. I can't. I can't. I'm just angry now. No, but no you're 100 percent right, because Jokic is the front runner currently. I think James Harden had a great chance potentially to take it away from him. He's injured, and with so little games left in the regular season, like he's going to be out for probably a week, two weeks at least. And Jokic, the Nuggets are on the rise. Currently, they got Aaron Gordon, but Jokic is a walking triple-double. They're winning consistently. They're dominant. Damian Lillard is the only other player that should be put in the conversation for MVP. Unfortunately, Dame always falls by the wayside because he just is notorious for putting up these incredible performances and sort of expected, unfortunately. Their team, are they sixth now? Seventh? I think they fell to six, but yeah, they're, they're, they're still comfortably going to be six or seven. Yeah, they'll be in the playoffs, obviously, but it's just tough because he's just, he's just that great and he does a lot of scoring for the team. I guess Jokic is positive is he does scoring he can facilitate the ball and he can rebound too which not to say dame can't do any of that either but 
it's hard to look at a team like the Nuggets who are doing so well against these perennial powerhouses in the West and not be like, hey, wow, he's he should be the MVP. Yeah, I mean, he's been doing this all year. And now that the Nuggets have finally found their their consistent success, moved up to the fourth seed in the East or the West, excuse me. I, I think it falls in his lap again with Embiid out, with LeBron out, with Harden. I mean, you know, we don't know how much time he's going to miss, but expected to miss a few weeks at least. Yeah, I think it's obvious. You, you said it perfectly with Dame. He's just not quite impacting the game enough, and it is expected of him. To, like, when he scores 40 points, we all like we don't even bat an eye anymore because he just does it all the time. And, like, where that is an extremely impressive and crazy idea, it is something that, that people don't consider as much. And also, you said Jokic rebounds. He assists. He scores. Dame really just scores and assists. He doesn't. He doesn't play a lot of defense. He doesn't rebound the basketball unless it's just one of his random good rebounding games. Don't get me wrong. He is one of, if not the best point guard in basketball right now. But if we're talking about all around, who is the best player giving the most, you know, the team their most success, it's got to be Jokic at this point. Yeah. And as even as a Sixers fan with Embiid, you know, I, him being the MVP front runner until he got hurt. I just want to say, like, either if it's Jokic or Lode, I would have no problem with either of them winning because I enjoy watching both of them. They play at such a high level and do so much to their team. And honestly, they're fun to watch. Like, I got this, I had the opportunity to see young Jokic live against the Warriors. He casually dropped a 30 point triple double. And Dame, just on TV, is absolutely electric. Man makes a shot from anywhere. Logo Lode for a reason. Literally, literally. So those two, the top front runners, but Jokic probably the front. If we're, you know, if, if we're making it nice for the, the top three candidates, the award ceremony at the end would have, we'd bring up names like at this point, probably Giannis, maybe Donovan Mitchell or Luka Doncic. Again, players like Kawhi and Jimmy Butler, I just don't think have played enough to be really considered. I think it's just like the time that Embiid and LeBron are missing right now is time that Kawhi and Jimmy already missed. So it's going to kind of even out in the, the games they all miss and why they're not there. So I, I would probably say Giannis is going to be the third MVP candidate and and Mitchell would be like my, not quite sleeper because the Jazz are so good, but I don't think people are really considering him for the MVP. So like he could slot in as that extra candidate. So last, thank you. Yeah, last thing here for the NBA is that little bit of Paul Pierce knowledge we had earlier. Paul Pierce and ESPN are parting ways seemingly after a video surfaced on Paul Pierce's Instagram live of him smoking a cigar or a blunt or something with uh, some exotic dancers in the background. Um, man, I'm super happy because not for that situation. I don't know what the hell that was, but just, I hate Paul Pierce. I think he's a bumbling idiot that holds on to that 2008 Celtics championship. Like it's his own penis and good God. He just, nothing he said ever made sense to me. And it was always just like aggravating. So the fact that he's gone is at least ESPN is doing something right. Yeah, honestly, I don't even think it was the Instagram Live stuff. I really just think ESPN was looking for a chance to get rid of him. Yeah, I know you hold that Dwayne Wade comment. Like, like just it infuriates you and just drives you as a human every day. But, yeah, I even aside from Dwayne Wade, like, I just – I don't like Paul Pierce. I just – he's everything about sports media that I hate where it's just this immediately gravitates toward the newest – shiniest thing that's occurring Mm -hmm. and if it's especially if it's anything boston it's like blown up times 50 and that will always set me ablaze yes i am with you there boston sports need some kind of humbling so hopefully this helps a little bit he says big things are coming for him i 
don't want to know uh, what that means. I, I actually think he's going to be joining Barstool. That'd be so funny. I I, I, was gonna... I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that tracks for Paul Pierce. And if that happens, A, good luck, Paul Pierce. B, that is going to solidify any career judgment I had on him. He is exactly who I expected him to be if he joins Barstool. I just, I really think, like, despite the fact, you know, Barstool is diverse and the people, like, and talking about, like, they hire former athletes, like Spin Chicklets mm-hmm. having, like, former hockey players. Deion Sanders works there. I really think, despite that, and, like, despite the, the normal people they hire in terms of, like, credentials, I think he'd be the one to get bullied the most, quite frankly. Good. He deserves it. He should have his championship trophy revoked just for fun. All right. That's what we got for the news segment. We have one more segment we're going to get to here. So in uh, light of the tournament ending and Gonzaga nearly being an undefeated champion, we wanted to give you our list of the top three. We're going to do top three college individual college basketball teams ever. So not we're not going to pick like the Leitner era. If you were picking like a, a Christian Leitner team, you would pick one year of it. Of so. That's how we're going to go here. Let's, let's start at three, work our way up to our best team. So uh, let you start. Who is the, the third best college basketball team ever, in your opinion? It would have to be the 2010 – this is for championship teams – 2010-2011 UConn men's team. That team just – you have to look at – there's a video. I think it's 11, the 11-game 11 run that immortalized Kemba Walker. And while it's not a part of the tournament, the step back he does at Madison Square Garden against Pitt is one of probably my favorite shots that I've ever watched and is something that I love. It's just so smooth and just so great and poetic how he does it that it's hard not to watch that. On top of that, the run they did in the tournament, the teams they knocked off, I know they beat – it was in Arizona, a really tough Arizona team – they had to go through hell and high water, especially with the run beforehand to even potentially make it in the tournament or at least have a decent seed to make a run. Like Kemba Walker is primarily why I put it in. I immortalized that shot specifically, but they were kind of undersized. I mean, they had Jeremy Lamb as well, young Shabazz Napier at that point, but they just, they were a team of destiny. They knocked off some big, teams and i just i i I love it i love the underdog story and kemba walker while he's on boston now just one of my favorite players in college to watch because of just how he's shorter than i am he's six foot and for him to do what he can do like he would first of all easily beat me in basketball no question (laughs) about that like any nba player but just what he could do at his height just is incredible and I love the run and very well-deserved in terms of a championship. Oh, yeah. No, if you're first of all, Cinderella runs just straight up playing like great basketball on a tournament run. This is one of the best teams of all time. The unexpected, the, the shots Kemba made, the energy that that team played with and brought every single game they played in that tournament. 100% love that team. One of the, one of the teams that really, really got me into college basketball as I was growing up. So I, I respect the hell out of that one. My third team here is a 2011-2012 Kentucky Wildcats. So a little background here. They were 38-2. and two. They, they had seven NBA players, Anthony Davis, Michael Kagilchrist, Terrence Jones, Deron Lamb, Kyle Whitler, Marquise Teague, and Darius Miller. Their entire starting lineup was drafted in the first 40 draft picks of the following draft. That is how much talent was on this team. Like I said, just two losses. 
They ended up beating Kansas in the national championship. I think it was 12 points. It was pretty handled, handled victory. Um, Anthony Davis set what was at the time the shot, uh, the block shots record for the NCAA, which I think two years later would be broken by Nerlens Noel. Uh, but either way, was a was a record-setting player. The unibrow was brought into full form. Um, and that, that team is probably the best Kentucky team ever. If you're talking about talent, you're talking about not, not just talent, but then tra- translating that talent into success on the court. I mean, they won a national championship for starters, but they could handle anybody. I mean, they played like two close games that tournament. Everything else was just, they, they ran over teams. Um, Anthony Davis obviously has turned into one of the best players in the NBA when he's healthy. So, and, and I think you could really see how good he was going to get. And then you really did see it when, before he played a second in the NBA, he was helping team USA, not that team USA needed all that much help, but was helping them as the last man on the roster to, to win a world championship in the Olympics. That Kentucky team was loaded. I would never want to drive a basketball against Anthony Davis. Oh God, no. Yeah. It's crazy looking back on some of the Kentucky teams, how much NBA ready talent they had. And obviously Anthony Davis goes number one overall next year. Just, oh, how dominant he was in college. And then immediately didn't miss a beat and just was dominant in the NBA. If I'm so, not mistaken, he and Michael Gilchrist were the first two teammates to ever go one and two. Or at least I, it was the first in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that would fall into that category. So not too shabby in my opinion. Moving on here, who you got at number two? I got to go with the 05-06 Florida team. They won back-to-back. This is the first of their back-to-back. First of all, this the roster of it maybe doesn't look as impressive now, but at a time, the NBA, it was. Their roster consisted of Joe Kim Noah, Al Horford, Corey Brewer, and then a lot of other role players who had, like, just were either great in college or, Artarion Green was another one who or had like decent success in the NBA. They were a little iffy. They only they lost, had six losses on the year. They lost to all SEC opponents, which is kind of crazy to think about. But in the tournament, other than their Sweet 16 game against Georgetown, where they won by four, they won by double digits against all the teams. They crushed South Alabama first round, beat UW Milwaukee by 18, which isn't saying much, but then Manhandled, uh, manhandled number one seed George. Or sorry, Villanova by thirteen. Jeez, played the team of destiny, George Mason, in the final four, won by fifteen, and then beat a two seed UCLA by sixteen points in the championship. Utter dominance, and they proceeded to do it again the next year, which is even crazier to think mm-hmm. about. You know, looking back, I think it was like I would have been in second grade when this occurred. Uh. I definitely want George Mason to win the tournament. So I was pretty bummed, but like looking back on it, you could just see how dominant this Florida team was. And while they weren't flashy, they weren't incredible. It's like, wow, this team had a lot of talent on it. There's a reason why three of them had like legitimate, like good careers in the NBA and Al Horford still being a career in the NBA. He's rested for the rest of the year because he's old. But of course. no, you're hundred percent right. Horford and Noah became multiple time NBA all-stars. Um, Joakim Noah finished like third or fourth for an MVP one year, defensive player of the year recipient. 
Um, and Corey Brewer, no, no player to trifle over. He he's been a journeyman in the NBA, but he helps every team he plays for. He's been very useful, great in transition. He had a 50 point game once if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, no, that's a fantastic team. Definitely a great one to mention there. Those Florida teams were, I mean, winning back-to-back championships in any area era, but definitely in the modern era, very, very difficult. My number two team is the 1971-72 UCLA Bruins. Team went 30-0. and uh, I don't know if any of the role players were NBA players, but they had Henry Bibby, who played some years for the Sixers and a few other teams, and uh, one of the best big men ever, Bill Walton. Absolutely physically dominant player. You know, we, we know he won a championship late in his career with Boston. He won one with Portland, too. He was... I mean, I mean, first of all, if you ever seen him on like TV nowadays being the guest broadcaster, he's hilarious. He's one of the most like fun, entertaining guys out there. Um, but when he was a competitor and a player, you go back, you watch some of the tapes, some of the, the clips. He killed guys. He was not messing around on the court. And obviously that was evident as this team did not win or excuse me, did not lose a single game all year en route to the national championship. One of the last teams to do that. This team, there's a lot of talk about could teams from the older era play with teams in the modern era. And one of the things that always holds true is if, you know, the center is kind of dissipating, especially in college basketball. But if you have a true superstar center that can run the floor, you're going to be fine. We see that with a Joel Embiid. Bill Walton would have been the exact same way. I think this team could have handled just about, if not any other college basketball team throughout all time. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you, and they were headlined by their coach, John Wooden, as well, who – reason there's the Wooden Pretty Award exists and has the name John Wooden. So it's hard sometimes to translate over how dominant teams were because basketball is obviously different. And on top of that, I think if you had a great coach, it led you far. It wasn't all about players necessarily. It was about how good the team was coached together. But – just unbelievably dominant and a Bill Walden featured team. Hey, you got to give it to them. Oh, yeah. All right. Number one, who right. is, in your opinion, the best team ever? Okay. I got to go with, and there's a lot of bias here, but I'm <laughs> repping it today. I got my Duke Blue Devils sweatshirt on. Listen, hate me all you want, but the 91 92 Duke Blue Devils team, one of, if not the, my opinion, the best team of all time. It is the second of their back-to-back championships. It is the first time this feat had been accomplished since UCLA back in the 70s. And, you know, the year before was great. Like, they beat UNLV. It was a perennial powerhouse at the time in the championship. But this year, they went, I think it was 30, yeah, 34-2. and two. They lost a close game to Wake Forest, which I would just like to backtrack on that game. They were down by a point or two. And Grant Hill throws an inbound pass to Christian Leitner with no one on him, or sorry, with a person on him, and it kind of curves and ultimately goes out of bounds when Leitner tries to throw up a shot. Just remember that. Just remember that. Was a uh, was Tim Duncan on that team? For no, Wake no, this is before no? Duncan. But okay. the Wake Forest team in the regular season just happened to get a pretty good win against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So they and they also lost to UNC, a real close game, like at. Um, at North Carolina. But after that, they just went on an absolute tear. And the team was headlined by Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, who obviously had a lot of NBA success. And then, of course, Christian Leitner is probably the best NCAA basketball player of all time. Mm-hmm. So they had a very interesting road to the championship. 
you know, they, they killed Campbell in the first round. Campbell. They beat Iowa, of course, because everyone beats that Iowa. That means nothing. They played Seton Hall, which they beat. They won by 12, but Seton Hall is interesting because Bobby Hurley's brother actually played on that team, so they got the chance to play against each other. Of course, the one I have to bring up, Kentucky. Everyone knows about this game. This one went to overtime. This is the Rick Patino team. Just back and forth game. And going back to that loss against Wake Forest, the Grant Hill inbounds pass, Grant Hill this time delivered a three-quarter court pass to Christian Leitner at the baseline. Christian Leitner, with all intents and purposes, with two seconds left, dribbled once and did a turnaround jump shot at the free throw line, which is one of my favorite shots to do in-game. Swish, perfect, knew it was going in before even probably after it left its hands. Then they go and beat Indiana in the semifinals by three points. So another very close game. And then who do they beat in the championship? None other than the Fab Five Michigan. And they beat them by 20 points. Yeah, they handled them. Handled them. Well, if you ever watch documentaries about them, the team definitely didn't get along. It's kind of like this sort of – Leitner was a lot like Michael Jordan in the sense that he wanted to win and want, like it was like my way or the highway. And while it didn't translate in the NBA, obviously – as much he they found a way to win he was the reason why so many fans hated duke and still continue to hate duke to this day mm-hmm. passionate fiery player that just let nothing bother him just went out of his way to crush you and to me that mindset well it can be very toxic to a degree is the form of a competitor and i absolutely loved it just the shot against kentucky is an all-time shot if not it's just it's oh yeah the poster Iconic. For the NCAA tournament about how good games can be. I no, I have yeah. so much love for this team and go Duke. I, I, I respect it. That I mean, like you said, Christian Leitner is probably the best college basketball player of all time. So it's very hard to leave him off of this list. Um, that like you said, that shot, one of you know, it's entrenched in history as one of the greatest shots. And the, the nice story for Grant Hill, a little redemption story, too. That's kind of, that's kind of nice. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, my, okay. So this is, might be a hot take here. So my best team of all time is the 2015, 2016 Villanova Wildcats. So they finished the season 35 and five. They were a two seed in the tournament. They did have six NBA players. Nobody like has turned into a star yet. I mean, they had Michael Bridges. They had Josh Hart. They had Ryan Archie Diacono, uh, Omari Spellman. Jalen Brunson was on the team. He wasn't playing, uh, Eric Pascal. So they had some good role players in the current NBA, but nobody oh, – I mean, Josh Hart was clearly their best player. Um, first of all, if we're talking about, like, excitement of the championship game, it's probably the most exciting NCAA championship finish of all time because Marcus Page hits this cra- – you know, I was referencing this when we were talking about UCLA Gonzaga earlier. Marcus Page hits this crazy deep three that every, with, like, 2.4 seconds left, and everybody's like, oh, my God, the game's over. UNC just won the NCAA championship. And lo and behold, Ryan Archidiakono walks up the court, does a little shuffle back pass to, I think it was Michael Jenkins, and he just rises up from the logo and bangs it home. Again, the rest is history. You, uh, Villanova wins in beyond dramatic fashion. Uh, but what people tend to forget is that Villanova beat five top 25 teams on their road to the national championship in the tournament like in the tournament played five of the 25 best teams in the nation, including number one overall seed Kansas, albeit a unimpressive number one overall seed roster being player of the year, Frank Mason, Devontae Graham being the best NBA player that they currently have. I got to shout out my boy, Svitislav Mikhailuk was also on that team. 
uh, but they handled them. And then again, just the excitement level of that championship was just, as you always say, electric, but that team played so well together. Jay Wright knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, they were four seniors and a junior was the starting lineup. When that, that is the case. And those players are talented. That is always going to translate to, to success in March. And that is exactly what happened. I hate Villanova when it comes to March because I always get, get them wrong in what I either take them to do well. And they do, they lose in the second round. I, I take them losing the second round. They win the national championship that happened this year, but I was totally fine with it as how much fun it was to watch that basketball team play as a fan of the game. That, that might be my all-time favorite college basketball team because they just, they played so smart. So together adjustments on the fly. And again, just, absolutely spectacular way to win a national championship on one of the coolest shots ever. Yeah. Probably the best national championship game you or I has seen, but yeah. What a, what a, what a run, honestly, because no Villanova had won since the eighties. They really weren't projected. They were projected to do well, obviously, but no one really thought they'd go all the way. And, they were so good, they erased Marcus Page's shot, which could arguably be one of the best shots of all time and made it look irrelevant in the yeah. grand scheme of things. Well, we hope you guys will let us know who you think had the better list here, who you think is the best college basketball team of all time, but uh, that's what we got for you. Don't get me wrong, this was not an easy list to make. There were a lot of great college basketball teams, and had Gonzaga won yesterday, they might have been on this list in some capacity, so fantastic playing from those young guys uh, again tournaments over so we'll be done with college basketball for a little while but we'll still do fun segments like this to keep it keep it in the, the relevant news but uh, that's what we got for you guys today hope you enjoyed everything and uh, our continuous slander on texas uh, we have fun with it again shout out to my work pool super fun hope everybody did well in their brackets and if not again hold out hope for next year but uh, we'll be back next week hope you guys have a great week take care everyone